Hi, Daryl Macias with your March 2020 Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Life podcast. We have a few things for you. We're going to discuss the relationship of pain coping strategies to performance in multi-stage ultramarathon runners. That's going to be our paper and our CME for today. And then we're going to be discussing some of the hypothermia guidelines and the new clinical practice guidelines. Then we're going to segue onto an interesting new type of course that was offered at the WMS Winter Conference over at Sun Valley, and it's about avalanche resuscitation, not just rescue or finding people, but actual what do you do with a patient after you found them. And that actually segues into an interesting conversation we had concerning educational value for some of these courses. So let's do this. I knew nothing about ultra marathons. I hadn't even run a marathon. I knew nothing about this world. So I Googled the, you know, the top 10 hardest races in the world. And what comes up is a Badwater 135. It's a 135-mile race through Death Valley in the summertime. I thought it was a stage race. I thought it was a race where you run like 20 miles, set up camp, you know, barbecue outside, and then go run some more the next day. So I called the race director up at the race and said, hey, Chris, his name is Chris Costin. I want to do your race. But the long and short of it all was I hadn't put running shoes on in over a year. I was a big-time power lifter. I lifted weights heavy. That's what I did. Right. I just got back home from Iraq, went straight to free fall school, and then this happened. So I called Chris Costin up on a Wednesday. He says, look, man, the only way you can qualify for my race is to run 100 miles at one time in 24 hours or less. There happened to be a race four days later. And he said, if you qualify by running 100 miles or less in 24 hours, I will consider you my race. I'm going to cut to the chase. I signed up for this race. It was called the San Diego One Day, where you run around a one-mile track for 24 hours to see how many miles you can get. My goal was 100 miles. So um, I got to mile 70. And I cleared 70 miles in like 12, 13 hours pretty quickly. But I was done. My feet were broken. I was stretch fractures, shin splints. Muscles were tearing. I was in bad shape. I was eating Ritz crackers and drinking Myoplex. <laughs> That's all I had. No water. Didn't know what the hell I was doing out there. Had on some tube socks. It was just ridiculous. It was, it was a clown show. Dr. Kevin Ausschuler is the lead author on Pain is Inevitable, but Suffering is Optional. Relationship of Pain Coping Strategies to Performance in multi-stage ultramarathon runners. He's an associate professor at the University of Washington in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine, and he's an adjunct in the Department of Neurology. He's been interested in both pain psychology and the clinical care and research surrounding pain psychology, as well as sport and performance psychology. And he's done pain psychology for 15 years, mostly in clinical populations, people with chronic pain, chronic low back pain, multiple sclerosis. He's been a lifelong athlete, coach, and he's done some sports psychology work. Now, in the genre of ultramarathon, ultramarathon series are really impressive physical feats for competitors, the series of races that are multi-day, where runners run significant distances over each day. For instance, in this one, they run a marathon a day for four days. Then they run a double length the fifth day before a short finishing stage. And then on top of it, they're in a desert. They're self-supported. They're carrying their own gear. Other than that, the race is providing their tent and their water. So it's a tremendous feat just to run that far, but to do it on top of these conditions and under these circumstances with a high incidence of injury, well, this includes things all the way down to skin issues, blisters, so forth, shin splints. Virtually everybody has something painful or uncomfortable to happen to them over the course of a given event like this. And then here are folks who go into an event where they're guaranteed 
to bring pain upon themselves. So all of these study participants showed that they had an initial amount of pain after stage one and increasing pain throughout the event. And the study really hinged on the way that they dealt with that pain and coping strategy that they used throughout the event. So Kevin, talk a little bit about the coping strategies that you measured, coping strategies in general, and then the adaptive pain coping strategies that you looked at in the study. So you're totally right that the average participant had a mild to moderate amount of pain, and that pain increased as they went on throughout the event. But what we know, and, and what you know, I'm sure, is that how much it hurts or how uncomfortable a person is isn't nearly as important as what they do or, or how they go about coping with that discomfort. And that's what the field of pain psychology is really built on. That, that they've come to realize that how bad it hurts doesn't explain how much the pain gets in the way or what kinds of problems the person has. What really explains those challenges is how the person manages the pain that they have. So we all use coping strategies, right? Whether they're good coping strategies or bad coping strategies, we all use them when we're in pain. But the field of pain psychology has 40 or 50 years of work that has tried to identify what strategies we might think of as adaptive or helpful and which ones are maladaptive or unhelpful. So for example, a classic maladaptive pain coping strategy is what we call pain catastrophizing. Uh, catastrophizing is what it sounds like. It's thinking of pain as a catastrophe or as a worst-case scenario with the worst possible outcomes, focusing on the way it could go most wrong for the person or have the greatest negative impact. Adaptive strategies are the ones that are helpful. There's a whole variety, but, but one I'm quite fond of uh, right now is the idea of like pain acceptance or pain willingness. So how willing are you to have the pain and to work with that pain? As opposed to being resistant to the pain and feeling like you can't live without or can't live your life if you have it, um, or you can't succeed at what you're doing unless the pain stops. So in this study, we tried to select some of the most common coping strategies that we think are helpful, and then some of the most common ones that we think are unhelpful. But without really knowing, to be honest, if that applied to this group, because most of these have only been researched in clinical populations where patients are really suffering from their pain which could be totally different from this population, um, where, you know, like I've said before, the entrants are almost willingly bringing that pain and discomfort on themselves. Well, these participants almost had to have already developed some positive coping strategies just to get through the training and to get through the start line of these types of things. Could you describe the difference between pain threshold and pain tolerance, and then how those coping strategies come into play? And then, kind of separating, you know, these people are operating at a relatively high perceived exertion level throughout the event. Which high relative perceived exertion is painful? So how do you separate pain from exertion levels and delineate between the pain threshold and pain tolerance of individuals? So I think it's important to start with the idea that pain is really individual to each person. And we don't have a great universal way to measure pain. A lot of pain is about how the individual perceives it. Um, such as how much they think it hurts, or even whether they've decided that that feeling or that stimulus is painful. Uh, some people think that something is painful, and, and then other people think that same thing just isn't painful. So we just don't have a good universal measure. But one way that uh, pain has been examined is this idea of pain threshold or pain tolerance. And those are two phrases that are often used almost interchangeably, but they're subtly different from each other. So pain threshold is the idea that 
it's the point at which a stimulus becomes painful. So if I were to push on your arm harder and harder, when I push hard, um, hard enough and, and you say it's painful, that would be your pain threshold. Your pain tolerance, on the other hand, is more about how you're able to coexist with the pain. So how long you're able to tolerate having that pain there. So if we go back to me pushing on your arm, and now we're at the part where it hurts, your tolerance would be how long you're willing to have me push that hard on your arm. The terms are often used interchangeably, and, and really they kind of move together for most people. So the person with a higher pain threshold probably also has a higher pain tolerance, but that's not necessarily guaranteed. They don't have to move together. In terms of how that relates to coping, we know that people who use what we think of as the more helpful or adaptive strategies tend to have a much higher um, pain threshold and a, a higher pain tolerance. If they're having less of a negative or adverse reaction to the pain, then they're probably going to allow it to be there for longer. In terms of, of bringing exertion into the equation, um, it, it's true that exertion itself is uncomfortable. And I think in the athlete world, we often say, like, wow, that workout really hurt, or that race really hurt. And, you know, we often almost use pain language as part of exertion. What we thought was important here was to capture a measure of exertion from the athletes to make sure that we weren't mistaking pain and discomfort for exertion or the other way around, to make sure we were controlling for that exertion in the research. I think a hidden question in the back of our minds was also, does pain impact exertion? So for example, working hard is painful, but the other idea is that you know, maybe when people hurt, they might start to dial down the effort to control the pain. We felt like it was an important piece of data to collect in the athletes. And, and of course, what we found in this group is that everybody worked really hard. So there just wasn't that much of a difference across the group. Everybody suffers at some level. Everybody's working hard over the course of the events. And it, those things just don't separate the individuals that much. You start to become civilized. The refrigerator gets full. You start get, making money and you start, I'm not getting cold anymore. I'm retired. Once you, and at 40, people shouldn't be playing basketball or football or, or, or being in You start to believe that there's people who are retiring, you know, at 40-something years old or, or 30-something years old. At 43, I'm still putting 100-mile weeks still doing thousands of pull-ups, thousands of push-ups, because I'm not allowing myself to become civilized. The worst thing that can happen to a man is become civilized. You lose that fight. I'm good. You ain't good, man. You ain't never arrived. You want to be uncommon amongst uncommon people. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. When I was going through this and looking at the tables and the figures, I noticed that you're looking at both, what is the worst pain that you've experienced during that stage today? And then you ask them about pain interference, which is how much did the pain interfere with their performance? And it looked like even early on after stage one, the non-finisher started with a higher initial worst pain rating and pain interference rating. And that makes intuitive sense. But do you think that uh, you could predict this somewhat in these multi-stage events that people who struggle more in stage one are more likely to not finish? Or do you think that washout phenomenon occurs as they kind of get into a rhythm? How do you think that this could come into play with planning and strategizing? Yeah, I think it's an interesting observation because it was certainly this way for pain intensity and it was this way for coping as well, where we saw that individuals who ended up having to drop out of the race were worse from the beginning. And to some extent, and in some of the variables, um, it kind of diverged. 
So while everyone suffered more as it went along, their suffering increased at a more rapid rate. So I think it's a good question of whether you know it's predictive. I think you know one of our, reg re our um, regrets afterwards was that in trying to decrease the burden for the participants, we didn't collect a, a lot of data going into the race. So we don't really know why that separation was there. You know, was it because um, of you know truly the pain and the coping, or was there something going on with these individuals? in advance, you know, that they had an injury or they had other issues going on. We just don't know. Uh, we're definitely interested in that, though, because from a clinical side, we're ultimately interested in, you know, how do you help the athletes better prepare for these events? And I think there's some valuable lessons that we can take from this. But the question we're asking here is almost a preparation question. Are people prepared going into it? And are they, at a st are they starting at a good spot to be successful? And I'm not sure we know the answer to those things. Yeah, what was pre-existing like? How did you sleep the previous week? You know, things like that. Going back into your expertise in chronic pain syndromes for non-athletes, I think we certainly have enough data out there to know that there is a pretty large psychosomatic effect on pain perception and how people feel towards their pain. Again, that goes back to some of the coping things. How do you deal with chronic pain? And do you think there's a cyclic phenomenon, a chicken-egg phenomenon, maybe, that they're having a bad day, Maybe they're having some discomfort, and that leads them to perceiving their pain to be worse or being in a worse mental state, and that leads to worse pain perception, which leads to a worse mental state, and so on and so forth. There's no question that once a person starts experiencing pain, it starts to intersect with their coping, and they start to feed off of each other. Uh, the thing that we've maybe figured out the least, though, is the chicken or the egg. Which one came first? What we know is once it starts, it feeds into itself. And this, of course, on the clinical side, with our chronic pain patients, this is the basis of chronic pain. It hurts. They're really worried about it. They're worried about the worst-case scenarios. They do less. They're less active. Now their pain's worse, which just makes the whole thing seem even worse, which makes them more concerned. Right? It just becomes this trap. We saw that a little bit here in terms of... Um, the growth of, of pain intensity and, and pain coping over time. Um, but the foundation of, of pain psychology is certainly that uh, circularity that you're mentioning. One thing worth mentioning, too, is do you think that one of the limitations of this study was that bringing on the subject of pain and the focus of pain to the forefront of the athletes or the participants' minds was a limitation? You see, the participants are more aware of pain. They're having a higher perceived pain because of the study. And it maybe it made certain runners more aware of it, but maybe they were able to deal with it because it was brought to the forefront. Do you think that this affected the measurements at all? When we do our consent forms for our studies, this is almost always the primary risk that we put in there. Um, it's actually this way probably for all of psychology research. Right? We say, so we're going to ask you to think about you know, some experience that you're having or that you've had and as a result of thinking about that experience, you might experience increased distress because you're more focused or more aware of it. So I think you're right. I, I think that when you're thinking more about your pain and you're thinking about how your pain is impacting you, it, it certainly increases your awareness. And I think you're right that for some people that's probably helpful. And for some people that could actually be harmful. So one piece of this is like, this is why we wanted a few hundred participants and not just five. Right? So hopefully those who it helps and those who it hurts kind of wash each other out. 
um, and it, it averages out in the middle. So that's one piece of it. The other piece, though, that, that underlies what you're asking about here is the awareness aspect of pain. Pain really only matters uh, when we care about it. When something that we're feeling hurts, we call it pain, and we decide it might be a sign of harm, and it might alarm us. And you know that's what pain is really all about. So people do a lot to try to not think about pain, not be aware of their pain. So it's kind of contrary to that human instinct to force people to think about their pain. Our hope, and I don't know if this is true, um, but, but our hope is that over multiple hours in a day, a person has a lot to think about, not just their pain. And the fact that after each stage, we ask them how much it hurts, you know, that probably wasn't that different than a topic of conversation they might have had with their peers after that stage anyway, which was, you know, like how it felt that day and how they felt about how it went and what challenges they were facing and, and things like that. So let's bring it all together. The point of research is to be able to change things, to be able to improve things, to be able to address these things before you have to deal with them. So do you have anything that you can bring back to ultra marathoners in regards to training on pain tolerance, training on coping, training to tr or trying to train people to be able to deal with this before the race? That way they can have the maximum potential for finishing success. We didn't talk through all the results, but one of the main things we found is that it was actually the maladaptive coping that had the biggest impact on the athletes. So it's the individuals who are using more of those unhelpful strategies who suffered the most. And I should mention that this population as a whole does not use that many unhelpful strategies. They were, of course, very much at, at one end of the continuum. And if we were to select a population that we thought would do well in these types of envir environments, this was certainly the group. But even within this group, the worse a person coped, the worse the outcomes. And if we think about this, if we're trying an event where, you know, where they're virtually guaranteed to face this type of challenge, then we really want to prepare athletes to manage the challenge, this pain challenge, the best that they can. So just as athletes are training physically uh, and you know, supporting their diet and their strategy and so forth, our hope is that a finding like this would encourage athletes to also work on strengthening their mental skills, their, their psychology, performance or sports psychology, um, their use of coping strategies. So they don't go out there and say, this is going to hurt, and I just, you know, I, I hope I handle it well. But that they have some plan in place for what they're going to do. And even though the, the focus and, and really the, um, the centerpiece of this, this study was that uh, the, the emphasis on the maladaptive coping strategies, I think the thing that we're always encouraging athletes in this situation to work on is how they're coexisting with that discomfort. It's going to be there. It's not going to help to fight it off. And so the question is, you know, how do you coexist with it? How do you keep it from taking over? Um, how do you maintain your focus? Um, how do you keep it, um, the struggle from being bigger than it is? Uh, you know, how do you keep things at the size they should be so that, that you can go about your craft and, you know, in this case, the running and, and succeed the best way possible? And, you know, this isn't really any different than we do with our chronic pain patients. It's really the same approach, right? There's a lot of work, for example, on mindfulness-type skills, acceptance-based skills. We have all these, and, and this is a lot of the work that we're already doing with athletes in different ways. And so we want to apply it here. But I think the biggest thing is just making sure that this group of athletes, this community, knows that this is something worth working on and worth investing on because it's going to impact their outcomes and, and their performance. 
And that's something worth spending time on in advance. Even just making them aware of what some of these maladaptive coping strategies are to be able to be recognized and that then they can say, you know what, I'm not doing this. Let me switch into more proper coping skills because it's almost impossible in these races to not begin to have some maladaptive coping strategies as was found in the study. Aware of what those are, to be aware of that, oh, I'm going the wrong direction, how I'm perceiving my pain. What are some good ways to try to coexist with it, as you say? These are great points. And I think that, again, making athletes aware that dealing with this is just as important, this mindfulness aspect is just as important as a physical aspect of it. Do you have any other points that maybe we didn't discuss that would be important for our listeners? You know, not from the science side, but I did want to mention that I'm talking about this project on behalf of a large team. Uh, these studies don't happen with a small group of people. So we had a group of pain psychology researchers who have a lot of experience in, in studying pain in this way, as well as a group of physicians with expertise in um, these multi-stage ultramarathons. And, and this included a group of residents who spent time collecting the data and sending me back um, Ziploc bags full of um, response sheets and some sand from the desert. Um, and so this certainly isn't research, uh, easy research, right? This is um, certainly a unique challenge to collect this type of data. And I'm just so thankful to all of our collaborators, as well as the over 200 participants who, you know, on top of the running and the camping and the surviving in the desert, took the time every day to fill out the questionnaires. And we're certainly very grateful for that. Well, again, I'm thankful for Kevin for the interview. We hope that you have gotten a lot out of it. By the way, in the 2019 edition Pain by the same author, they look at some of these coping mechanisms. If you're interested, check it out. I'm a warrior, period. There's a lot of guys that have been in a lot more combat than me. A warrior is not always that. A warrior says, hey, I'm here again today. I'm here again tomorrow. I'm going to be here the next day. I'm 50 years old. I'm still getting after it. It's a person that puts no limit on what's possible. I found out through this path of life, who is David Goggins? Who am I? So going through all, I did it alone. Wilderness Medical Society Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Out-of-Hospital Evaluation and Treatment of Accidental Hypothermia 2019 update. Yes, I need to talk about this because it is the season. And there's many authors on here. Jen Dow was the lead author, and it's a very interesting read, and I would encourage you to read it. But I'm going to go ahead and pre-digest this for you because I think it bears just talking about for all the advances that are happening. I still feel a bit under the weather. How are you feeling? How do you think I feel? It's stupid cold, haven't I? Thanks a lot. Poor darling. You should have said something. I'd have come down and made you some soup. I called for you. I said... Laura, you didn't come, so I dialed 999. What? Where is he? Quickly, love. Okay, son, everything's gonna be fine. He's gonna die. Not if we can help it. My head's so burning. How did this happen? Oh, he caught the cold off me. I'm a bit confused. Hasn't he just got a cold? For God's sake, woman, he's a man. He's got a man cold. First of all, let's just cut to it. There's a couple different classifications of hypothermia. Typically, we've considered hypothermia as mild when you measure core temperature, core temperature of 32 to 35 degrees Celsius. It's moderate if it's 28 to 32 C, and hypothermia is classified as severe 
if you have a core body temperature less than 28 Celsius. There are some experts that have advocated this further category, a profound hypothermia, which is either less than 20 degrees or 24 degrees Celsius, depending on what you read. Now, what's important about this profound hypothermia is that the chance of survival appears to be much lower in this profound hypothermia range, maybe because there is a high likelihood of cardiac arrest. But you see with hypothermia, there's actually this reverse triage situation where a hypothermic victim, you may tag them as black, meaning unresuscitatable, and you just forget about them. Well, this is not the case, especially with regard to avalanche resuscitation, which I will cover after we discuss this clinical practice guideline. So some of the factors that are used to guide treatment are this standard classification system. So when you get from 35 to 32 degrees, and when I say degrees, we're just going to call it Celsius or centigrade, this is the mild hypothermia. Well, thermoregulatory shivering control works. It increases as the core temperature decreases. But with further cooling, then shivering will become less effective. But it could still be strong even at 31 degrees. Generally, though, when you get below 32, which is the moderate hypothermia classification, thermoregulation is less effective. Rewarming really is only possible when you add heat, exogenous heat. When you get below a core temperature of 32, then the level of consciousness tends to decrease. And below 28, that's when you get into profound, severe hypothermia territory. Many patients are going to be unconscious. They're not going to be shivering. And then the risk of ventricular fibrillation or asystole is high because what's happening is with these patients, they're just going to continue to plunge down. Anybody with a broken arm or leg should go out and lay it in the snow. It'll help the swelling go down. Now, the key factors that guide hypothermia treatment are therefore level of consciousness, alertness, shivering intensity, physical performance, and cardiovascular stability based on blood pressure and cardiac rhythm. You notice that core temperature isn't always mentioned because it's sometimes difficult to get core temperature, at least in the field. It's an additional helpful type of information, but it's very difficult. So the things such as level of consciousness and deciding to guide your treatment based on that shivering performance physically and cardiovascular or hemodynamic stability as an evidence grade of 1C. That's pretty good. Some patients, however, are cold, but they're not hypothermic. For instance, you have a shivering patient with a core temperature greater than 35. Well, they're shivering. Are they mildly hypothermic? Some would say that they are simply cold stress, but not hypothermic since their temperature is elevated. If you have a patient like that, they're alert, they're awake, hemodynamically otherwise stable, but you can't measure their temperature, for instance, then use your clinical judgment to distinguish whether that patient is really in the mild hypothermia range or if they are cold stressed. If you're not sure, be conservative, treat them as a mildly hypothermic patient. Now, let's suppose we go to the other end of the spectrum. You get somebody who's profoundly hypothermic and they need defibrillation. Well, according to the American Heart Association 2010 guidelines, they have proposed an alternate classification of hypothermia, which is mild, greater than 34 degrees, moderate, 30 to 34 degrees, and severe, less than 30 degrees. And defibrillation, according to them, is less likely to be successful at temperature below 30 degrees than above 30 degrees. And this is going to be borne out to be true 
in the paper, as well as some of you who have had some clinical experience with these patients. I can tell you, I certainly have. The panel here recommended that the AHA scheme shouldn't be used for out-of-hospital treatment of hypothermia. Sure, it's fine if you're inpatient, but I think there's some other classification systems that can be used. Now, one of the classification systems that we tend to use and we've used in our avalanche resuscitation guidelines is this so-called Swiss hypothermia classification system developed to help rescuers estimate core temperature by observing clinical signs. One of the issues with this system is that there are individuals that may have variability with response to individual response, that is, to cold. So estimating core temperature on the basis of clinical signs is only an approximation. Now, the stages of the Swiss hypothermia grading system is abbreviated HT. For instance, an HT1 is somebody who has a clear sensorium, but they're shivering, and they may be from 32 to 35 degrees. When you get to HT2, this is when you get into impaired consciousness. You're basically babbling. You've got the fumbles, mumbles, stumbles, etc., and they're not shivering. Johnson's right. Oh, you can call me Ray, or you can call me Jay, but you doesn't have to call me Johnson. Two naturals, please. Please don't ask him his name. Name? You can call me Ray, or you can call me... This is approximated to be between 32 to, uh, excuse me, 28 to 32 degrees. When a patient gets into the HT3 territory, then they are unconscious. So HT2, they're impaired. HT3, they are unconscious, but they do have vital signs. They're anywhere between 24 to 28 degrees, and an HT4, it looks like apparent death. He may not have vital signs, but they may be from, well, less than 24 degrees. In the paper, it talks about 13.7 to 24 degrees, and we'll talk about that 13.7 just a little bit later. And then HT5 is death due to irreversible hypothermia. You see, again, the limitation to this Swiss system is that some individuals are going to vary in their physiologic response to hypothermia. Some people may have, for instance, shivering at 31 degrees, but generally a shivering patient with impaired consciousness is treated for moderate, not mild hypothermia. And I generally will go with more of the sensorium rather than the shiver. There have been a couple of case reports with people who have had vital signs with core temperatures below 24 degrees. There are some other things just to consider with regard to hypothermia and altered mentation that you want to make sure isn't happening, such as severe trauma, maybe some drugs, medications, maybe carbon monoxide, things like that. Make sure that those are not cofactors with regard to your patient. Well, what this guy look like, anyways? Oh, he's a little guy, kind of funny looking. Uh-huh. In what way? Oh, just in a general kind of way. Okay. Well, thanks a bunch, Mr. Mora. You're right. It's probably nothing. But thanks for calling her in. Sure. Looks like she's going to turn cold tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Measurement of core temperature. This is a little sticky. If you listen to my podcast with Dr. Popsicle, Dr. Giesbrecht, a couple iterations ago, he talked about the esophageal temperature probe and how easy it is to get. Well, it might be in Canada, but ever since that podcast came out, it isn't that easy and it isn't really that cheap to obtain an esophageal temperature probe or monitor. They're about $400 if you buy them off places like Boundtree and whatnot. And so that it is 
it just isn't quite that easy. Now, having read the article here is kind of interesting because what I had mentioned in that previous podcast was that it's somewhat invasive. And what I meant by that is that you're sticking an esophageal probe down pretty far. It's got to be in the lower one-third of the esophagus. And by doing that, it may not be that easy to put, although these esophageal probes are not that floppy. But the other thing is you can induce vomiting, aspiration in somebody who does not have a protected airway. So here's what's going on here. The writers of the article do state that, yeah, you stick this probe into somebody's esophageal area and you're going to get vomiting and aspiration possibly. So the recommendation, yes, the recommendation, the airway must be protected with an endotracheal tube or supraglottic device, allowing passage of a gastric tube before placement of an esophageal probe. So it, according to these authors, still doesn't seem that straightforward. So I know Dr. Giesbrecht was part of this group of uh, guideline writers, so if, uh, if, if there's any new information that comes out, we'll definitely talk to you about that. But this is important. And so field conditions, field conditions, according to the writers, will rarely allow for placement of an esophageal probe. However, transporting air or ground medical services that have this capacity should place a probe as soon as possible. Yeah. And so there it is. The evidence grade with these recommendations is pretty good. 1C. Now, let's talk about the epitympanic temperature. This is the ear canal temperature. Now, don't mix this up with the infrared sensor that we'll talk about a little bit later. What the epitympanic measurement does is it inserts a soft probe with a thermistor real close to the tympanic membrane, and this reflects carotid artery temperature. But don't confuse it again with the infrared tympanic thermometers. If a patient has good cardiac output, this epitympanic temperature probe reflects core temperature, but it can be lower in decreased or no flow cardiac output states. You have to make sure if you're using this in an out-of-hospital setting that the ear canal is insulated, that there's not snow, there's not cerumen that blocks the area, and that the probe is properly covered with an isolating cap. It sounds like it's a really good device, especially if you've got a patient whose airway has not been secured by endotracheal intubation or a supraglottic airway. Rectal temperature in the field? Nope. Rectal and bladder temperatures during rewarming? Probably in the hospital. Oral temperatures? They are only useful to rule out hypothermia. They have to go low. Again, if you have a person who's got altered sensorium, this may not be the best option and may not be accurate with regard to core temperature. A temporal artery thermometer, which is kind of common in a lot of hospitals, no. What about this zero heat flux thermometer? Have you heard of that? We've used this. It's actually called a spot-on, and it's a double sensor thermometer. It has a skin temperature sensor with a heat flux sensor. It's a little complicated. I won't get into it. According to the authors, it correlates well with esophageal temperatures in the OR and intensive care unit settings. Honestly, we have tried to use this in the out-of-hospital setting, and we are not impressed with this technology. And the writers also state that the technology has not been validated in field settings, and so they can't do any recommendations for or against it. Core temperature after drop, circumrescue collapse, and handling of a hypothermic patient during a rescue. So let's go to it. Core temperature after drop. 
whether it's clinically significant or not is going to depend on the degree of hypothermia and the amount of core temperature after drop that happens. Now, you may say to self, self, what does that mean, core temperature after drop? It means continued core cooling after a person is removed from a cold environment. And it's caused by a combination of conductive heat loss from warmer core to the cooler peripheral tissue and convective heat loss from blood from increased flow to cooler tissues and subsequent return of that cold blood to the central circulation and heart. Now, this is affected by the method of rewarming this phenomenon. In somebody who's hypothermic, the peripheral tissue, for instance, the limbs, they're going to be colder than the heart. And then if you have any action that's going to increase blood flow to that cold peripheral tissue, such as hoisting a patient, holding the victim in a vertical position, allowing the victim to stand or walk, active or passive limb movement, immersing that person in warm water, or just preferentially warming up the limbs with all that cold blood relative to the core truncal blood, well, what's going to happen is that cold blood is going to provide a nice cold shot of cold blood to the heart. And what's going to happen is that volume of cold blood is going back to the heart, increasing cardiac work. And if somebody has some sort of a predisposing cardiac issue, that's going to be a big problem. And you're also going to decrease the core temperature more. This is especially clinically important, this afterdrop phenomena, if a patient is in the threshold of moderate to severe hypothermia, because they are susceptible to cardiovascular instability with even just a small further drop in that core temperature. In some hypothermic patients, they've recorded core after drop as much as six degrees. So that's pretty big. So try to take care to prevent increased blood flow to the limbs during and after rescue, especially in these pretty cold people. And so it even ends up that somebody with mild hypothermia, we try to limit them from walking. And we generally would recommend that somebody with rescue just warm them up conservatively. Don't let them get up for a while. If they're cold stressed, well, you can probably have them walk around a little bit. But again, be careful with these sort of circumstances. If you're worried about somebody having mild hypothermia, exercise more caution. Now, circumrescue collapse. We could also call this something akin to this rewarming shock, but not quite. Let's go to what the authors are talking about here. The circumrescue collapse. It refers to lightheadedness, collapse, syncope, or sudden death. Ooh occurring in victims of cold water immersion. So this is not quite the rewarming shock. But this will happen after cold water immersion, just before, during, or after rescue, after having been removed from water. Why? Maybe there's decreased catecholamine output. Maybe the person is more mentally relaxed. Not really sure. But hypotension can supervene, and cardiac dysrhythmias such as ventricular fibrillation can then occur. Now, what happens is if you remove a victim from water, this decreases hydrostatic pressure. The deeper you go in water, the more hydrostatic pressure you are under, which is normally greatest around the legs. Removing this hydrostatic pressure, it's like those old mass pants. This allows blood to pool in dependent areas. This causes decreased blood return to the central circulation with resultant hypotension or cardiovascular collapse. And that cold heart may not be able to compensate for that change in blood pressure by increasing cardiac output. And then, boom, you could also get afterdrop, and you're going to become unconscious or worse. So be careful with this, especially for those who've had cold water immersion. 
after extrication, next priority for care of a hypothermic patient in the out-of-hospital setting is to maintain that core temperature by preventing further heat loss. So you may not be able to add heat, but you must prevent further heat loss. There's several ways you can do this. There was some talk at the WMS Winter Conference in Sun Valley about this bubble wrap idea. And we saw it a few years ago in Chamonix at the ICAR meeting. It's interesting that bubble wrap can be an effective vapor barrier and an effective insulator, maybe not as good as some other things, but it does provide less insulation than other materials. If you want to use bubble wrap, knock yourself out of it, but the problem is you have to go to the post office before you get the bubble wrap. I don't know if that's really very doable, and it takes a lot of space if you haven't noticed, but they sure are fun to pop those little bubbles. Now, as far as field rewarming, now we get into field rewarming. Well, if they're shivering, that's fine. Shivering is actually very effective. If you can actually increase basal metabolic rate, and you can have a patient warmed by themselves, by their own shivering, by three to four degrees per hour, but it can stress the cardiovascular system, which would not be optimal in somebody who's got limited cardiac reserve. So if you refer to an article and to that podcast with Giesbrecht that I mentioned earlier, it's actually nice to provide heat. When you provide heat, it can provide just as much rewarming as shivering, but it stresses the heart less, and it's actually more comfortable for the patient. So you don't have to necessarily have somebody shiver only. You can make them more comfortable. That is provided that you prevent any further heat loss. Now, once a patient's protected from further heat loss, they have adequate energy reserves. Give them a little hot tang or hot chocolate, whatever you got to give them. Then, once that's happened, then you can carefully have the patient to walk, provided it is mild. If it's moderate, I wouldn't recommend it there, Wilbur. Walking or other exercise in the right setting will generate additional heat. If you start it right after rescue, this could cause that after drop problem, and so don't do it. Now, as far as active external rewarming, there are several ways which you can do that. You can actually add things such as warm water bottles, perhaps even large chemical heat blankets, not those little heat packs that you're going to rewarm your handsies and footsies on, but something a little bit bigger. You can use these charcoal types of coils as well, provided that you light the charcoal and let the thing smoke so that you don't get carbon monoxide poisoning, especially if you're in an enclosed environment. And by the way, don't necessarily, it's not recommended to use those charcoal coil rewarmers in an enclosed setting for a prolonged period of time, like an air ambulance. But if you've got some of those things, great. If you're adding some of these warm water bottles, for instance, they're effective. If you can apply the warm water things to the chest, to the back, and to the axilla. Though not expressly mentioned in the clinical practice guidelines, I do remember talking to Giesbrecht. He does not recommend putting them in the groin for obvious reasons. You can actually burn those little sensitive bits and pieces, so you don't want to do that. And also, the practice guidelines does make a good idea. Do periodic skin checks where cold skin meets the warming agent every half an hour because there have been incidences of burn and whatnot. Now, what if you don't have anything and you resort to this body-to-body rewarming? We've done this, and we found that you can actually increase somebody's temperature by about a degree an hour. But there's some interesting things. Rewarming rate, according to the article, isn't really that much greater than shivering alone, which is true. Body-to-body rewarming can make the cold patient more comfortable because they will have decreased shivering. 
but this will cost a delay in evacuation potentially. So we don't recommend body-to-body rewarming if it's going to delay evacuation, but it could work. Some other ways to increase external rewarming, heated humidified oxygen alone. It isn't really that effective. It could be used as an adjunct, but don't do it all over. What if you get a nice warm shower or a nice warm bath? Throw that patient in there. They are markedly hypothermic. Just splash them in there. Well, a warm shower or bath will markedly increase peripheral blood flow, increasing afterdrop and causing this hypotension or rewarming shock. And it can cause cardiovascular collapse, unstable dysrhythmias. Don't do it. I've seen it before. Don't recommend it. As far as some other things such as forced air warming, whether it's through the charcoal heater coil or if it's uh, using something like a bear hugger, a convective type of bear hugger, forced air warming tends to be better than forced liquid warming. And it'll work really nicely during ground or air transport and, of course, in the hospital. Now, as far as resuscitation, how low is too low, hypothermically speaking, to discontinue resuscitation efforts? Don't have any idea. The lowest known core temperature from which a patient with accidental hypothermia has been successfully resuscitated is 13.7 degrees. Told you I'd get back to that. Yep. And the lowest core temperature ever induced therapeutically is 9 degrees. And guess what? Both of these patients survived neurologically intact. That is very good news. So resuscitation attempts, continue them regardless of the measured core temperature. There's one case that was cited that had somebody receiving CPR for six and a half hours, and they recovered well after that, which is really interesting. Now, CPR in a hypothermic patient with an organized cardiac rhythm, on the other hand, because what you've done astutely is you've maybe checked the pulse for hopefully a minute, or hopefully you had something called POCUS, point-of-care ultrasound, to be able to detect some sort of a cardiac rhythm. Well, if somebody has a cardiac rhythm and they have cardiac movement, well, they can have ventricular fibrillation. Now, if they've got PEA, not really sure about that, but you know, you do have to be careful with this sort of thing. And so echocardiography, it's a great thing to have. If you have a non-perfusing rhythm, then go ahead, start the CPR. VTAC, VFib, asystole, those are good. The authors state that if you have an organized rhythm, maybe not, that would be for PEA, unless Antidal CO2 monitoring confirms the lack of perfusion or echocardiography shows that there's no cardiac contraction corresponding to electrical activity. And that has an evidence grade of 1B. There you go. Now, we get into this situation where we might have to delay CPR, and this is especially important for certain search and rescue applications. For instance, intermittent CPR. Give you a little background. Like I've said, there was some case reports of severely hypothermic patients living with good neurologic status after 6 hours, 30 minutes of CPR. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they are goners. Now, classically, we're taught that CPR must be started promptly and continued without interruption until the return of spontaneous circulation can be established or death confirmed. Well, first of all, it's hard to warm up a person who's cold and dead. They're just not going to get warm, by the way. And this CPR strategy recommended, for instance, by the American Heart Association, it may not be practical in patients with severe hypothermia under a rescue situation. There's a case report of a hypothermic avalanche victim successfully resuscitated with complete neurologic recovery, though CPR wasn't started for 15 minutes after a monitored cardiac arrest. In another case report, an avalanche victim was extricated, apneic, and pulseless after five hours of burial in a crevice. 
They didn't make any efforts to resuscitate the patient. They just got that patient out. Then the patient was flown to a nearby hospital. An ECG showed asystole. CPR was started 70 minutes after rescue. And guess what? The patient made a full neurologic recovery. So what they intuit with some sort of scientific derivation in the guidelines is that with properly performed compressions, it takes an estimated five minutes of cerebral oxygenation to overcome an ischemic cerebral threshold. If you can, immediate high-quality CPR, do it. If it's impossible or unsafe to perform immediate and continuous CPR, then rescuers can perform intermittent CPR. Ideally, compressions are not delayed for longer than 10 minutes. A conservative number would be 5 minutes. So that would be 5 minutes on, meaning 5 minutes CPR, 5 minutes off, no CPR. And we talked about this in our avalanche resuscitation course. Just a few other pointers is that IVs, if you can get them, great, but don't let that slow down other efforts. And if you had to give fluid administration, the idea is to give warm fluids, not cold fluids, but warm fluids. The rewarming rates for warmed saline solution, one liter at 42 degrees, is about maybe 0.1, 0.2 centigrade or Celsius per hour. Pretty minimal, but again, you don't want to lose core temperature. And the goal of fluid administration is to maintain systolic blood pressure or adequate perfusion would be more proper. If you need to give glucose, do it if they're hypoglycemic or if you're in any doubt. And if you got ultimately a profoundly hypothermic patient, less than 28, they have some sort of hemodynamic or dysrhythmic instability with a witness out of hospital cardiac arrest, you can consider transporting them to the nearest hospital with extracorporeal life support. ECLS is basically, if you will, cardiopulmonary bypass or more for us, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO. But a patient who's hemodynamically unstable with a core temperature less than 28, take them to an ECLS facility. Now, if this requires additional time, you might be able to stop at a closer facility for stabilization. And there are other methods to initiate active core rewarming that I won't get into now. Lastly, I want to comment on serum potassium values. We're a little bit all over the place with this, but generally what the Folks here on the guidelines recommend that if an adult hypothermic patient has a potassium greater than 12, CPR should be terminated. I think this is reasonable. The evidence grade is 1B, although there's been a move by the International Commission for Alpine Rescue in something called the HOPE score that potassium be discontinued if the potassium is less than 8 millimoles per liter. Now, the HOPE score, we can talk about that really briefly basically is a prognostication score validated for hypothermic, but not avalanche victims, but hypothermic victims. And you can read about this. It was a retrospective review that was a derivation study done by some Swiss in Lausanne. And it basically stated that if you had a few factors, which included burial time, whether or not there was a airway in an airway or whatnot, and if the patient had other things such as vital signs and, importantly, a potassium score, you could decide whether or not to initiate ECLS. Now, the thing with a potassium score is there's some controversy as to whether potassium is accurate for a cold patient in the field, and a lot of search and rescue organizations do not have a point-of-care ability to check a potassium. So it's probably a decision best deferred to an in-hospital type of situation for now. Again, the HOPE score is a nice guideline. It isn't definitive. We do use it in our avalanche score. But these are some of the vagaries. I recommend that you read 
the Hypothermia Clinical Practice Guidelines 2019. There's some interesting things in there. Okay, so Eric, you've established some ideas. Now, we'll move on then. Okay, mark that, and we can go ahead and turn oh, off. No injuries that are incompatible with life. That means no deadly injuries. Obstructed airway. Okay, obstructed airway. How yes many minutes? No. Now, those are some of our students that took our course at the WMS Winter Workshop in Sun Valley, Idaho, and it was avalanche resuscitation. We came upon this, a few of us here and in Europe, because we recognize that while there are a lot of avalanche courses that are out there, they often do not address what do you do with the patient after you have dug them out? What do you do? And there's no unified type of agreement as to, well, do we do CPR? There's a lot of conditions that are different with any given patient that's excavated. So what we have tried to do is here and with the ICAR and several other organizations, ISMM, and now importantly, developed by the Mountain Safety Info, which is led by Manuel Ginswine, but consists of 20 plus experts in the field of avalanche throughout the world. Well, there was a flowchart attempt that we tried to make that would simplify the ICAR recommendations a little bit. Now, granted, if you've seen this flowchart, it does flow like a flow chart should, but it still is going to need some work. It's based on three premises, and the premise behind our course in avalanche resuscitation was to treat a patient according to pattern recognition. When you are in the throes of an actual real-life scenario, you're going to be panicked, your amygdala is going into overload, and you're not going to be able to think. But with repetition, you'll be able to recognize the patient who has asphyxia, the patient who has hypothermia, the patient who has trauma. Asphyxia, hypothermia, trauma. And you treat them accordingly. And I actually put out a video that explains these things under a rubric of the temperature or the time of burial in an avalanche victim, that simplifies it. And you can reach out to us if you're interested in this, but this became part of the avalanche resuscitation workshop that we had. But if I can break it down, here's what's important. When you get to an avalanche scenario, you want to make sure everybody's okay, and you note the time of the avalanche. Then, with this flow chart, the first thing to do is to obviously determine where the patient is, search and excavate however you've been taught by your avalanche course how to search and excavate. But there are some strategic methodologies by which search and excavation is done. And Manuel Genswein devoted over 20 years into avalanche research, I think, has this dialed down. Along with Peter Powell and a few other folks, this Avalife algorithm has been developed for BLS and ALS providers. What you want to do is after the excavation process, you want to assess the head access time and therefore the total burial duration. And while you're uncovering the head and chest, other people are continuing to unbury the patient. And this becomes a little different if there are other people buried. But what you're ascertaining as is to whether there is an obstructed airway or an air pocket. 
and to ascertain whether that patient is breathing normally. If they're not breathing normally, then you give five rescue breaths, which is similar to what we would do with a drowning victim or a person who's been choked or a person who had some sort of a hanging. If the five rescue breaths does not return the breathing, you can start CPR, obviously with good pulses if there are no good pulses. And then you can also determine whether or not the injuries are incompatible with life, a frozen chest, a transected torso or head, something like that. It, you have to decide on your own. Now, if there are buried subjects, other buried subjects who are not being excavated, then you come to this very interesting split in this algorithm. And you determine whether or not the burial duration was less than 60 minutes or greater than 60 minutes. And if it's less than 60 minutes, the patient's probably going to have a temperature greater than 30. So they're not going to be profoundly hypothermic. So you probably won't be able to measure that core temperature, but you can assess the time. So they fall into a category of less than 60 minutes or greater than 30 or greater than 60 minutes, which will mean that the patient will probably have a core temperature less than 30. So it's the 60 30 rule, and they are inversely related to one another. If they've been buried for less than 60, then the cardiac arrest may be due to asphyxia, and you can go ahead and take care of that. If they are cold, then you can determine whether or not they have a, an ECG that's with ventricular fibrillation, pulses VTAC or PEA, or a systole, or you don't know. If you've got to do CPR, you do it for six minutes if there are multiple buried subjects. And this is one contention of controversy because some in the International Commission for Alpine Rescue don't necessarily agree with this. Is this based on research? Yes and no. It's based on mathematical research and modeling. It's called the Monte Carlo model, which basically intuits through this mathematical model is that a patient who doesn't have vital signs, who is buried with other multiple patients, for instance, four, the efficacy of CPR goes to a maximum of five to seven minutes. So six minutes was chosen as a middle point. But it's not been humanly validated because there aren't that many cases that have employed this. And keep in mind, you're not going to get the Institutional Review Board to allow subjects to be buried like this to see who lives and who dies. It's just not going to happen. So until more information comes out, this may make sense. But again, as higher level care providers, if that's where you're at, you have to decide. Now, this isn't in the BLS category. This is something that's actually pretty high up there. Are you here for a reason or are you just hoping for a glimmer? And you are? Mikhailakos. Russian Atomic Energy Department, Miss... Doctor. Jones. Christmas Jones. And don't make any jokes, I've heard them all. I don't know any doctor jokes. If a person does have a perfusible or potentially perfusible rhythm, what I say is ventricular fibrillation, pulseless VTAC, or PEA, you can alert the hospital with extracorporeal life support. Now in Europe, they actually have these portable ones, and I demonstrated one in the talk that I did in the main auditorium, and I demonstrated this 
device called a CardioHelp. It's an ECMO device, and it is really small. You can either use it by battery power, which will last for six hours, or you can actually hand crank it as well. If you weren't there, oh, you missed something crazy and fun as far as my lecture, if I don't mind to say so myself. I can't keep doing this forever. It's been 20 seconds. Call it. But we had a lot of good lectures, by the way. But it's also going to depend whether or not the airway was fully obstructed. If a person's been buried for that long and the airway was fully obstructed, it is possible that the patient actually had an asphyxia type of cardiac arrest, and then they just became hypothermic. And so you can consider terminating CPR. Or if CPR in multiple casualties occurs and they don't have the return of vital signs, you can consider the termination of CPR, but the word is consider, not you must do. Then if you do have a person with an ECG that demonstrates some of those other, well, I guess you could call them perfusing rhythms, but they're not really perfusing, but they're salvageable versus a systole. Or if you have a point of care ultrasound or you use an entitled CO2, you can then do the full excavation and then you can treat all patients and then you want to do thermal protection. And then you can decide once you've transported that patient to an ECLS facility, you can then implement this HOPE score that I was discussing. And then you can go ahead and rewarm them. With that, here's what has been found. This is the second time we've actually taught this course. In the experience of some of us who were teaching the course, we've actually seen a different preparation level, at least with regard to avalanche excavation after full burials in physicians in Europe compared to here and healthcare providers. It's naturally going to be a little different here. And there is a very interesting discussion that two of the instructors, Manuel Genswein from Switzerland and my fellow, Jamie Newberry, who's here at UNM, she had a very interesting take on some of the ideas that we tried to propagate. And so if you're a learner, you've not been exposed to this. And we had a few people that were not that familiar with avalanche excavation nor resuscitation. Well, they may have taken something a little bit different out of the avalanche resuscitation class than we intended. Of course, we intended that people would be able to accurately make decisions, to be able to find patients, to be able to use this mental model protocol. Was a patient asphyxiated? Was a patient hypothermic? Was a patient traumatized? But Jamie took something a little different home in that sometimes learners and instructors have totally different learning objectives. And let's see what happened during our recap after the course. Manual, what we've been doing has been part and parcel with a collaborative group that's international that you founded called MSI Mountain Safety Info. And tell us a little bit about the background with this Avalife resuscitation course. So on today's course, we um, tried to bridge the um, technical part of a rescue with the emergency mountain medicine part of the rescue. And mountainsafety.info was uh, basically involved on both sides. We developed the uh, protocols 
and uh, best practices on how to search and excavate the buried subjects as um, efficiently and rapidly as possible. But then at the same time, we realized when the um, patient does not get the best possible treatment immediately at the point his head and chest is being uh, extricated, he's probably not going to make it or at least not going to make it with a good neurologic income outcome. So today we brought these uh, emergency physicians out into the field and showed them uh, both sides of the game. Uh, the rescue technical one with the search and the excavation component, which was probably um, quite new for many of them. And uh, as soon as the patient uh, was uh, extricated, they stepped into a domain which was um, much more uh, normal to them, the medical treatment of the patient. However, it took place in an environment uh, medical doctor, especially in the United States, uh, does not see very often because the patient is not already um, Package, in the st right. sterile environment right. of the hospital. But there are many um, side effects of the specific environment that they need to manage. And yeah, I think many of them were not as familiar with this environment as they maybe have anticipated. How long have you actually been teaching avalanche education and avalanche research? For um, 28 years in about 30 countries. Yes, you're asked all over the world by many ski patrollers, by many international organizations to teach the knowledge that you have really uncovered, elucidated, and made very clear to the public, yeah? Yes, and... Uh, to a, to a big part, it was, uh, of course, focusing on people who are involved in mountain safety, so the prevention part or the rescue part, as an occupational activity. Um, we can focus really on introducing a very specific new method a very specific new strategy and everything around it is for them already clear. So the starting point is very different. And thanks to the routine, I mean, routine has as well very positive things in uh, professional life. Our participants today, they were um, maybe a little bit overwhelmed by the fact that we exposed them to situations which they analytically completely understand and I think that retrospectively they uh, would say yes of course these uh, facts were all given so uh, we should have decided after 30 seconds uh, there's nothing we can do for this patient and in a multiple casualty incident to provide greatest good for the greatest number we need to move on immediately However, as the component of routine for the participants we had today was missing, they, the pattern recognition did not work immediately and they uh, allowed themselves to be sidetracked 
bei bei der Emotion that now this patient is unsavable. Right, unsalvageable, right. And that's very interesting because often, at least in medical education, we talk about our objectives, what we want our learners to learn, what we expect out of them. But Jamie, you had a very interesting idea that may be a little different than what we would normally value as far as medical education. Can you reiterate some of those ideas, please? So I think that we were actually talking a little bit about the intersection between um, the technical and medical learning that we were doing in the field today, and that we had this beautiful diagram with like um, <laughs> like a Word document that had these uh, lovely pictures that showed like the progression from patient one through four and in which way we should move through the scenario and how the learner would discover patient one and then find patient two and they would be pulseless and then they would move on downfield and then find patient three. This isn't what happened at all. I think that most scenarios we found patient one and then we found patient four and then patient two. Um, the burial times were all out of whack and as um, instructors, we were attempting to try to kind of guide people through the medical and technical aspects of this rescue um, with our agenda, while um, really what happened, like I think in scenario one for the majority of the people at the Wilderness Medicine Conference was that they got stuck on the first fatality for something like seven minutes. And I was sitting there with my watch watching them um, with this, uh, it the I think the card said multiple injuries incompatible with life. There was blood everywhere, was what I had told the participants. I'm at the top of the hill, and I'm like, there's blood everywhere. There's a rock. The patient has dashed his brains out, and there's blood all over the place. Um, he has no pulse. Um, it's The time down is 55 minutes. But the, the scenario participants are standing around the inflatable Annie with them. Right, inflatable Yeah, we Annie. have an inflatable Recessy Annie. Recessy right. Annie, and she's Ooh. blown up, and she's like, the head is inside of the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the hole. Yeah, we have a jumpsuit. So Annie's in a stone jumpsuit. <laughs> and the participants are there for something like seven or eight minutes. And I was thinking about this, like our diagram of what we're trying to teach and what kind of competencies we want people to walk out of this conference with and what it is that they are actually learning in the moment. Um, and what is the gulf between what we're attempting to teach them and what they're learning as learners? And how do we manage to honor the fact that they're, they've stopped at this fatality and they don't know what to do? The team leader hasn't said, you know what, this guy's obviously dead. They're like super dead. Their brains on the super rocks dead. dead. Mm -hmm. Please, someone <laughs> just leave. Leave the patient. But we're all standing around. And there's a reason why we're doing this. Um, and it's not a moral failing. It's not an intellectual failing. It's something that almost like a international sense of like, what is it that people do in Europe and how is our CME system set up such that we're signing up for things that we're maybe not quite ready to deal with in a technical rescue aspect? Like maybe people that signed up for the course at WMS didn't have AVI 1 or AVI 2. And maybe it would have been very helpful to know how to use your beacon and how to do 
a course in mm-hmm. fine search and like how to do the mechanics of it so that you could focus on the more medical aspects. But then again, like people are where they are. So do you think that there might have been a deeper lesson learned by the participants in that? Okay, we can acknowledge a lot of them were lacking some of the technical expertise that we would value as mountain rescuers. But do you feel that there was some other priority that the student had that was different than what we had as objectives for them? What do you think of that? And that might reflect on something that you had just mentioned when you were giving grand rounds as a senior resident, how you had the higher-ups tell you these are the objectives, these are objectives for emergency medicine boards. However, you would have the learners say, well, you know, they would focus on something totally different. And maybe for them, that was a more valid teaching point for them than to talk about these are the ABCs of a GI bleed or necrotizing pancreatitis and this is how you treat it with antibiotics. Why didn't you have the antibiotics? What's wrong with you people? And sometimes medical education can kind of be a little more dogmatic in that. But you had a very interesting perspective that I think could touch on this a little bit with respect to watching poor Recessa Annie I don't know, bloat out. I don't know, whatever you call it. <laughs> Nobody popped the recessa Annie, Thank which I'm goodness. very grateful yes. for. We were, people are probing aggressively and we're like, don't uh. probe too aggressively or you might pop Annie. <laughs> Nobody popped Annie today. So that's, I'm grateful for that. So you can so you. travel yes. back with your equipment intact. Yeah. I, I think that um, people don't behave the way that they do or make decisions um for no reason really Mm. so when you watch a crowd of seven people that are clustered around avalanche victim number two who is dead as a doornail and as an instructor you're like why are you not moving along and why can't i crack the whip over you and just say Mm. you know what you're supposed to understand that this is a traumatic arrest and traumatic (laughs) arrests is objective and the learner's objective is something that may be very different Um, We were talking about learning through simulation and how some of our simulation cases are really very interesting and very different. Um, As a senior resident, I was required to prepare a bunch of like simulation cases. And there's always like you're trying to be a good resident and do your Mm. due diligence. And I did all my research and I had pages and notes about like whatever case I was supposed to present. And you show up and you program your sim mannequin. You're freaking out about like whether they blink right or whether they're breathing okay or if the audio works and your learners gather around you and the case unfolds and nothing goes like you planned it. Yeah. And I had this whole list of things that I needed them to know about, like, you know, things about like the antibiotics and their dosing and what's the most appropriate antibiotic for a given indication. And when should they have started vasopressors? Like probably before the blood pressure hits 60 over 40 and while the patient still had pulses, like somebody should have yeah. thought to do this, yeah. but that's not always what the learners decided to learn um, and learning how to, f- to manage the room such that the people who are in it are guided and end up walking out with the teaching points that you want, but also the things that they've chosen to learn are also honored. Um, I think one of these cases was like, uh, like we we talked about necrotizing pancreatitis for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. One of these cases was a case of necrotizing pancreatitis and the patient was super sick and hypoxic and all the things went wrong. And it was like a septic patient that should have gotten antibiotics. And there was like a med student who was 
to play the wailing family member in the room and they're mm. screaming and they're trying to stress you out and they're dragging on the providers as they're attempting to do things for the patient. Um, nobody really focused on the medical aspects of the case. It, it just blew right over their head. Nobody in that room had experienced the dying process and the case ended up being more about the dying process than it ended up being about the medical points of managing and necrotizing pancreatitis. And I, um, as the senior resident, I remember crying outside the simulation room and just feeling wow. like I'd failed all these people right. because I hadn't taught them what I was expected to teach them. But what they learned, um, I had people come up to me weeks after the simulation case and say, you know, I'd never really thought about how I would tell somebody, you know, how, how I was going to put them on vasopressors. I'd never really confronted that problem. And I talked about it during the simulation case. And then a week later, I had somebody come into my ED that I had to tell that we were going to put on some sort of advanced measure by their minds, which was like a a big deal for some people that had never done this before and they did it in simulation it was what they learned obviously you can't walk away from an avalanche resuscitation course and not know how to dig a hole or use your trans transceiver yeah, but um you know how how do you take where people are and turn that into where they need to be um, on an individual basis as a teacher in the wilderness Rebuttal. But would you would you uh, <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. It's time for the rebuttal. <laughs> Give me more of that Swiss wine, I tell you. But would you not agree that if you would run the scenario a second time with the same participants, it would do much better. Because they're already steeper in the learning curve and uh, what they had to to learn uh, in the first uh, round, which you didn't anticipate that it would still be an issue for them and that it would still uh, represent such an overwhelming experience that basically all the real content you anticipated that they would focus on and try to solve were completely overlooked. But the next time, when they are already mentally prepared to to uh, filter that out and focus on the real issues, then your originally planned lesson totally made sense. And oh, I absolutely. think today yeah. that was equally the case for those participants who belonged to the upper 30 um, <clears throat> percent of level of proficiency for them it was neither a technical uh, difficulty nor a scaring experience to walk up the mountain on the snow so their main focus was really to apply these techniques and methods and algorithms which were of course our primary focus as the instructor's team so I, I am totally happy with the fact that after a day like today, where we had such an incredible diversity of participants that for some, the most important learning experience was, I need to know how to switch the transceiver to search and how I have to assemble the avalanche probe 
And for others, it is, um, oh yes, in this specific uh, case of avalanche treatment, I need to pay attention if at the very beginning, when the buried subject was excavated, what was their way status? So basically everyone takes something home from a simulation, but what they take home is obviously relative to where they are on the learning curve or on the level of proficiency in the different competencies we try to teach at the beginning of the day. Sure, and if there are other extenuating circumstances that may be personal. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I think that we we ran two separate scenarios today and we saw, um, I feel like, a really different pattern of behavior between the first scenario and the second scenario for all the learners. For some, like you mentioned, this the social shame of not knowing how to turn your transceiver on and how to deal with your own equipment was enough that people were just like turned away from the group and fiddling with their buttons privately and they figured it out and then turned around. They're like, okay, I'm ready to participate as part of the group. And that's not a lesson that you'll forget. Um, and hopefully people will remember to learn how to use their own equipment before they head out to the field. For others, it was more advanced leadership skills, like how do I manage to lead the entire team? And what's the vantage point that I take when I am the resuscitation leader? And how do I manage the entire thing? You know, I think it's a between scenario one and scenario two, we saw people do a lot of very different things that indicated they were changing and growing like within a half an hour of having picked up new skills. Yeah, and I think both of you do a great job in helping people and walking them through in order that they can become successful because it wasn't either of any of our, as instructors, our desire to see people fail but to see them succeed. And when we help them succeed, I think that just seemed to turn on a light. And I have to say that initially when we first met everybody, we did say, look, don't just consider us as the educators or as the professors and you folks as the learners. We're all learners. We all learn from each other. And I think what you both have said speaks to the fact that not only did we teach them, but I think they taught us some lessons. Yeah. Yes. All day, every All day. day. Every day. We're humbled. All right. <laughs> For the rest of my life. <laughs> wow. Well, thanks a lot, you guys. There's some snow to be had tomorrow. I certainly hope so. Good night. Good night. Good night. All right. I'm just saying, how do we know it's a night page? Because of all the ice. Are you okay? We believe, and when we say we, the instructors, which is myself, which was Manuel, which was Jamie, which was our other fellow, Risa Garcia, and of course, Dr. Jake Jensen, who's been invaluable in helping to promote this course. Well, and if you are interested in taking this course next year at the WMS Winter Conference, what I would strongly advise is that you have some avalanche course, maybe a recreational level one course under your belt. That's all you would really need for this. For those of you that did attend our course, thank you for your feedback. If you get any more ideas, please uh, shoot us an email or some sort of a message and we will make it more better.